many enslaved adults recalled horrific experiences on the auction block. Charles Ball was four years old when separated from his mother. On the day of his sale, he was naked and never owned any clothes. His new owner dressed him, but Ball vividly recalled that his poor mother, who knew it might be the last time she saw her son, ran after him. She took him down from the horse and held him tight, then wept loudly and bitterly over him. When it was time for him to leave, she walked alongside the road beside the horse, pleading with the owner not to take her son. After being physically separated, his mother was whipped, and Ball remembered the cries of my poor parent as they became less audible the further he traveled. Despite the fading sounds of her cries, and as young as I was, Ball explained, the horrors of that day sank deeply into my heart, and even at this time, though a half century has lapsed, the terrors of the scene return with painful vividness. That was Dinah Rami Berry reading from her compelling new book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. You can hear the horrifying context of that passage and how it fits into the larger history of our country right now. Professor Berry, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You know, the beauty of that reading, talking about Charles Ball, is that we're hearing his voice, hearing the slave's story from the slave's own perspective is truly incredible. How did you do that? Well, for me, so much of the scholarship on slavery used enslaved people as objects. So they were almost props on a stage. They were sort of part of the story, but not really the central part. And I wanted to know what the enslaved thought, what they felt um, from their words. And so I spent time looking through archives over 10 years of research, just trying to find places where I could find their voices, whether it was a slave narrative that had been published, whether it was an interview, a newspaper article where somebody asked an enslaved person a question, Anytime I could find their voices and their names and their stories, I tried to put that in the book. The thing when, you, when you're reading your book, there are two things happening. On the one hand, you make the enslaved real. Mm-hmm. And you make them real by using their words, their voices. On the other hand, you also see how, as you were just saying, slaves in other books were props on a stage. Mm-hmm. They were property. And yes. when you read in your book how folks were talked about on the auction block, how they were written about in Mm -hmm. these journals and and ledgers. There is no humanity Mm -hmm. in any of that. Mm -hmm. Reading the descriptions of young children, um, adolescents, Mm -hmm. in old narratives, these these folks were, as you said, they were just props. But now they are three-dimensional, real-life people Mm -hmm. who had real emotions. Right. One of the things I wanted to do was when we look at slave prices, because scholars always sort of pepper in the numbers in their books, I'd say, and it was just sort of like background information. They'd say, oh, well, even if they were not books about auctions, they would say, well, this person was worth $700. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And that's what really sort of started my research. I wanted to know what did these numbers mean, but I wanted to know what enslaved people thought of that. 
How did they feel about being treated as a commodity? Because what I learned as I looked at every stage of their lives, they were raised to understand themselves as human beings, because they were, but also as human chattel, as property, as movable forms of property. They knew that by age five or six. So the, this whole W.B. Du Bois, a double consciousness, mm-hmm. I would say enslaved people had a double consciousness of understanding themselves as a person and as a piece of property. They knew that their physical bodies were being looked at or viewed the same way we look at a car today. When we rent a car or we buy a car, we appraise it. Enslaved people were appraised. We look for damage. We look, you know, when they were on the auction block, they were ex- inspected. They were look, people looked into their mouths. Every cavity of their bodies were examined, literally. And just the same way when you leave the rental car lot, you know, you're looking for nicks and you're marking that up and you're keeping track of that. Enslaved people were treated that same way. But I wanted to show what they thought of this experience, how they reacted to it and how they survived and lived in the space of commodification. And that was really what drove the book. You know, in the remake of of Roots, uh, which is now, oh, my God, 30 years old. um, There's a 40. That's right. 40 years old. Oh, man. Um, there's a scene when Kunta Kinte is brought to the States. I believe it's Annapolis. Mm-hmm. This scene takes place and his soon-to-be slave owner comes in and does this really invasive yes. inspection. The mouth, the teeth, the gums, mm-hmm. grabs him in the crotch exactly. and in the behind and all these things. And I remember watching that going oh my God, this is really dehumanizing. And it wasn't until you and I met is when I learned like, no, what we just witnessed in that scene is something that happened. It was routine. It was routine. It was almost every, at at large public auctions. I mean, there's different ways that enslaved people were sold. So you have even the film 12 Years of a Slave, you see a private sale where they're in like a house setting Mm -hmm. and there's different rooms. You can go in and look at enslaved people. Then you have these large auction sales where people are put up on a block, whether it's a stand, a stone, a piece of wood, and they're sort of elevated. And then sometimes they're taken behind curtains or right there out in the open. People are coming and touching their bodies, touching their chest, their breasts. Women were examined literally to find out whether or not they'd be able to give birth to children. So they would do gynecological exams on enslaved women right there, supposedly behind curtains, but right there in the auction. So it was very common, mm-hmm. very, very common. So your book, each chapter is a moment in an enslaved person's person's life from before they before were born, they're born to infancy, adult, young adulthood, yes. and then when they're older, and then even when they're dead. Yes. That the, even in death, the enslaved are not free. No, no. And I think for me, that was the point where I actually added three more years of research because I discovered that enslaved bodies were then, their cadavers were traded and sold to for medical research. And so I do argue that even in death and beyond, they're still being commodified. So let's go. Let's go to the beginning. Let's go mm-hmm. to before before birth. Josephine Howell. Yes. There was a, there was something in here that just leapt out at me. Um, she talks about. She's talking about her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother had twenty one children. Yes. So they would look at a woman, and try to make projections on how many children she could deliver and whether or not they would be healthy. Infant mortality was very high at the time, so they wanted to make sure they could survive beyond age five. So a woman's value was wrapped into her the, the her fertility. 
And this is important because slavery was defined by the status of the mother. So if your mother was enslaved, then you would be enslaved. So as long as they had black women giving birth then and they were enslaved, their children would also be enslaved. So it was very important, particularly after the closing of the domestic slave trade in 1808, to have enslaved women on the plantation and to make sure those that were fertile could continue to give birth. The value of, of an enslaved woman, some slave owners liked having mm. women who could give birth, and then other slave owners didn't like exactly. women who gave birth or even had children of their own. And if they bought a woman who had children, they would buy her and send the send the children exactly. off. Exactly. So that was, a, I actually spent a couple of years on that because I came to this book thinking that women were valued higher during their childbearing mm-hmm. years because I had found about eight plantations in one community in Georgia from my first book that women's values were higher. So I thought that was going to be a national trend, and that's what I started doing this research. Then I recognized that during the colonial era, like right, actually around the American Revolutionary generation, there were differences in the way that the word breeding, breeding during that time meant raising somebody up. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean, you know, raping somebody to make sure that they're breeding more slaves. So there was a difference between the 18th century and the 19th century about women's value. And then I also saw that barren women, and I, I'm using the term from mm-hmm. the time period, right. also had different values. Some owners, enslavers, did not want women that had children because they couldn't do the labor on the plantation or their labor was decreased because they were tending to children. So some of them felt like women were liabilities. And they'd say, you know, I just want workers. Or if they had small farms, they needed women for subsistence work, they were growing crops, they didn't want someone taking time to breastfeed and do these other things. So some enslavers chose not to deal with pregnant women. And they wanted to only have, yeah, if she gives birth, I can sell the, the child, make money off of them, but then not have to worry about um, any decreased labor productivity. So this is an economic institution. Other, no, others wanted enslaved women because they didn't want to have to purchase new slaves because enslaved people were very expensive forms of property. And they didn't want to have to spend that kind of money. So if you have women that are able to give birth, then that, that's additional source of labor coming into your community. But it's going to be like five to seven years before they're actually starting to work and do productive work. And that's labor. the thing that that is compounding the horror mm-hmm. of, of all of this is knowing that slave owners who are projecting like, oh, I'm going to buy her. Mm-hmm. She's going to be able to have this many children. And at this point, way down the road, I'm going to have this many people. Exactly. Um, let's move into infancy and childhood. Mm-hmm. Rachel, sold at one year old. Yes. I actually, a scholarship in the 60s and 70s often said that children weren't sold separate from their parents. And I thought, I I kept finding them as I was developing this large database of enslaved people's values. I had a column in my chart for years of age, you know, age and years. Then I found someone that was eight months old, so I had to add a column that said months, age and months. Then I found someone that was three weeks old that was being sold away from their parent. Three weeks old? Yes. But the day that I actually stopped working for about a week was when I found a three-day-old baby in the auction block without their parent. And I had to create a column for days old. How many more did you find? Several. I mean, some of them, it would just say, like some of the columns, it wouldn't say, it wouldn't give their months. It would just say infant. And so sometimes they wouldn't reach, they wouldn't have an age until they were one. 
So even those that were under age one, we had to go back and rework the numbers because there were some where I knew how many months old they were, and there were some that I didn't know how many months, but I knew they weren't one years old. And so it was really difficult trying to figure out how I want to talk about that in a way where I can can focus on the individual because I wanted to give individuals their space in this record. You you just said a second ago that you stopped working for a week. I did. When you found that. Because I couldn't imagine, as a mother myself, I couldn't imagine having your child taken away from you at three days old. And I couldn't imagine from that child's perspective, who's not even cognitive enough to even understand and can't even see straight, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to be taken out of that space at three days old, put up on an auction block and sold? The cover of my book has a picture that most people don't even see the infant on the table. There was an infant. When you look at the picture, there's a mother reaching out, but she's reaching towards the baby that the enslaver is holding. Oh, right. And a lot of people... I'm looking at the cover right now. Yeah. And there's money on the table. Yeah. And so that child is probably, you know, eight or nine months old, you know, just looking at size. But what does this mean to be separated from your parent at that age? So we started out this incredible conversation with you reading the words of Charles Ball. Yes. Talk about Charles Ball and why he is a, a, a prominent or a significant figure in your field of study. So Charles Ball is important because we have a narrative from his perspective. He's not part of the Workers' Progress Administration narratives, which were interviews of enslaved people taken in the, taken in the 1930s. But there was a number of published narratives from as early as 1825 forward where abolitionists and other organizations published narratives of enslaved people once they received their freedom. So Charles Balls, like Frederick Douglass, um, we have a number of other enslaved narratives that, that the general population may or may not have heard of. Scholars, historians, we use these narratives all the time. Um, and so he's one of, very, of many enslaved people. But he talks about his recollections with Sale. He talks about his recollection of, of the separation from his mother. Um, and that's a very vivid scene. And, and one of the things I argue is that this moment in their lives when, they rec- when enslaved people recognize that they are property, it has a lasting effect, and it, these are memories that they will never forget. The average enslaved person was sold about four or five times in their lifetime. Mm. So this might be sale number one of many. And it's something that they come to terms with. That doesn't mean they accepted it, but they come to terms with it, and they know that it's a reality that, that haunts them for the rest of their lives. So even when they're taken away from their biological parents, they then have sometimes other parents that come as fictive kin or play, play parents when they are on another estate. You want to form a family. So enslaved people adapted by creating new families. But they always talked about the original, the, the, their biological parents. And they might have had, I have three mothers. My first mother was the mother that gave birth to me. My second mother was on X plantation. My third mother was when I went to this plantation. But I will always remember my first mother. You write, um, uh, after Charles Ball, this incredible moment where there is a a young boy, maybe he's a teenager or Mm -hmm. adolescent, on the auction block. And there is a, maybe this is being told by an abolitionist, I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly, but there is a gray-haired Negro. Yes standing next to him. Mm -hmm. The two of them are looking at each other, staring at each other, each 
has tears rolling down his eyes. There's, they are silent, mm-hmm. but they have this fixed gaze yes. on each other. And this leads into what you call soul value. Yes. Talk about that scene and talk about why that exemplifies soul value. Okay. So that scene was very important for me to include because you don't see a lot in slavery that talks about fathers and sons. And I believe that this was a father and son. Um, The paternal line is not always traced during slavery because mothers are the ones that that continue the institution. Mm -hmm. So some plantation records might have, you know, these are the parents of this child, but most of the time it'll say mothers and their children. And so it pained me to see all these fathers not being included here. And enslaved people had important relationships with their fathers. So when I saw this auction scene, I read this in a newspaper of a father and a son, and you talk about this gaze, it just seemed like a very powerful moment, and they knew that they were going to be separated. And I also felt like, I think the boy might have been around 11 or 12, Mm -hmm. so this was probably his first sale. This is that moment that he probably knew about since age five. He'd witnessed it or he'd seen it with other people, and it's now his moment. And he's going to experience this. It's a very powerful moment. Now, what I call soul value is that I thought about there's got to be a way. There has to be something that enslaved people held on to to survive and to make it through, to keep living, to, to find a new family, to find a new mother, a new father, a new partner. They had There had to be something there. And I found that there was a valuation that they had internally that, did, that is not a monetary valuation, but it's the value of themselves as human beings. It's the value of their souls. And that's something that they believe could not be commodified. This deep inner sense of themselves that enslaved people had. They weren't not, you know, not all of them gave in to enslavement. Not all of them sort of, they weren't all in this melancholy state of depression. Now, they probably were a number of them that were probably depressed. But I wanted to show the strength and the spirit and the souls of these people. And I found it in these, in these narratives and these stories. And I think that I had to come up with a term to describe it. You know, one of the ways it's sort of just in popular popular culture, even though this is based on on his family's history in Roots, to go back to Roots, throughout the entire series, Kunta Kinte ensures that he remembers his name and he ensures that everyone around him knows who he is, knows where he knows where he comes from. And that is how even strangers towards the end of the series, when he goes uh, goes back to find Kunta Mm -hmm. Kinte's relations this person was able to tell this narrative, exactly. tell this story that let folks know, oh, my God, Chicken George is, a, is exactly. alive. The thread in that is his soul value. Mm-hmm. And the soul value is something that can live beyond the body. Right. Right. And just and I also talk about ghost values, which we can come back. to. Oh, no, I was going to co- okay. I was going to come to that. Yeah, um, because that sort of brings us full circle in terms of even in death, the enslaved are not. They're not free. No. And so I, I term that ghost, the value of their bodies at death and beyond is to me a ghost value because they're, they're, they're cadavers. They're, the, the frame of their being is being traded. And so I refer to that as a ghost value because it's, they're on dissection tables. They're being traded through other spaces, but it's, they're not there for that particular commodification. And, you know, I was trying to find a way to talk about how the dead communicate because we don't have a narrative from someone that's dead to say, yeah, after I died, my body was put in a cask and sent to this school and people were, you know, cut me open. We don't have, we don't have testimony of that. So I, I can only think about a space 
that's something that we we don't have a way to, to catalog that. So I, I came up with the term ghost value. In the introduction, and this is among many things that sent a chill through me, you write their, their research, the folks who were doing research on these dead bodies, their research provided a context for the discovery in the, in the 1980s and 1990s of hundreds of improperly disposed African-American remains in the basement of the Medical College of Georgia and in a well at Virginia Commonwealth University. Construction and later archival excavations led to physical evidence of the domestic cadaver trade that I describe in this study. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because the Virginia, they're still trying to decide today what to do, what kind of burial and how their bodies are going to be laid to rest. And so they, they, they returned the, the, the bodies that they found in, in the 80s in the Medical College of Georgia um, were put in a large vault, and they had a ceremony. They're still determining what to do with the bodies in, in, at Virginia Commonwealth University. You know, most of the chapters here end in a burial. Mm-hmm. If enslaved people could bury the dead and send people off at the end of their lives, what would they do? What would they say? What songs would they sing? You know, how would they do that? There are still bodies that need to be laid to rest that have been that had never been in a proper burial. And so these ghost values, slavery is still very much a part of American culture, American history. Well, that gets to the next question mm-hmm. I was just about to ask you, and that is, what do you say to white people mm-hmm. who say, slavery has nothing to do with me, or none of my ancestors owned slaves, or this one really always gets me. Slavery was abolished in in 1865. Why can't black people move on? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I get that all the time, too. <laughs> so one of the things I say, and I say this publicly, um, anyone that's heard me speaks, and my students, I get probably tired of it. Black people in this country were enslaved longer than we have been free. And when you think about that reality, if slavery ended in 1865, it's now 2017, Black people were enslaved for almost 244 years. We haven't reached the 244-year mark of freedom. When I also look at the fact that there are institutions today, universities, municipalities, insurance companies, city governments, who benefited from slavery, literally and figuratively, there's connections to slavery that's today. There are bodies that have been unburied. There are insurance companies around today that had policies for enslaved people that we have records from. And so it's not that it was something that was that long ago. I think our nation as a whole, and I've said this many times, hasn't dealt with slavery. And there's a story about this one female slave. I think this is her sole value. She escaped and made it to Canada. And when she was interviewed from Canada, she didn't want to give her name. She just said, put me down as Mrs. MRS, period. So she wanted people to know that she was married, but didn't give her last name. And she said, for those who want to apologize for slavery, let them go experience it for a while. Wow. I mean, let the enslaved speak. Let them tell us. Look what she's telling us. Mm -hmm. I don't want an apology. We have yet to, the history books have not incorporated the kinds of stories, the textbooks. There are historical scholars or historians that are doing this work, but we're sometimes talking to one another. I wanted to write a book that was for a larger wider, accessible audience. And that's why I wrote this book. But I do think we need to do some reform with the textbooks, history textbooks. The paragraphs on slavery are getting better. But when I was growing up, Harriet Tubman, Frederick um, Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. and then Freedom. Martin Luther King. 
Right. <laughs> one paragraph. Right. And those were always the most uncomfortable yes. moments in in school. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, was, I went to yeah. predominantly white school. And on Slavery Day Ugh. during U.S. history classes, I felt all of the eyes yes. in the classroom yes. on me. And that's even when I wasn't called on by the teacher to read <laughs> the, passage. <laughs> the, the, the passage or two or hearing another classmate read these passages and you could tell they were uncomfortable yeah. uh, in doing so. Um, have you been to the National um, Museum of African American History and Culture? I went this week. And it was amazing. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed um, director Lonnie Bunch oh, yes. for the podcast early on. And he had wonderful things to say, including making the point that folks need to understand that this is American history. It is American history. And that white people need to understand that slavery is a part of that history. Exactly. And we, have, we all have to deal with it. What exhibit sort mm-hmm. of crystallizes your work, what you're doing, and the importance of what you're doing? So there's a wall that talks about the domestic slave trade, and that's what my book is about. And on the wall is a sack that a mother gave to her daughter. And I might be getting this wrong, but in, on the sack, it, it's like there was this woman stitched something on there to tell her to remember her, and this was passed mm-hmm. down through generations. That's powerful because this, was, this is something that's been passed down. Enslaved people had very few material items to pass down. But on this wall is also like the values and the names of enslaved people. They're sprinkled everywhere. And to me, it's important for us to remember there are so many nameless people who were traded and treated as a piece of property, but now are on this wall with their names and their stories. And we're, we're now in a space where we can reclaim their stories and make them a part of this history and allow them to tell the story of how they experience life in the United States. Professor Dinah Rami Berry, author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. She's also the associate professor uh, at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of History and African Diaspora Studies. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 